Please turn in your Bible to Luke 1. Look at verses 68 to 79 today. On this Lord's Day, we'll talk about the Benedictus, the Latin word for the first words out of Zacharias's mouth. Blessed be the Lord. And this was a blessing that was three quarters of a year in the making. If you look back at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke early on when Gabriel the angel uh, visits Zacharias and has a message for him, uh, he is told that uh, he will, uh, his wife, who was barren, and they were both advanced in years, are going to have a son. And after the angel reveals this to Zacharias, he asks, how could this be? I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered, I'm Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. That's how it can be, as in I've got a message from heaven for you, and I've been sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. Behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place. Why? Because you did not believe my words. And so, this was a blessing almost a whole year in the making because of Zacharias' unbelief and God's promise to make his elderly and barren wife pregnant. Well, now, where we start today, we are um, eight days after this son was born, John the Baptist, and Zacharias' mouth is opened and his tongue is loosed, and what he has to say today, my prayer is that it'll speak to your heart today for your instruction and edification to study his prayer of blessing to God in order to learn from it and have our hearts informed this Advent how to bless God in our worship, which when it comes down to it, isn't too far from the goal we had last week when we looked at Mary's song and we looked and saw that in true worship for Mary, uh, we were able to see her example by way of her actions, that true worship first and foremost comes from the inside. It starts in the inside and it springs up out of a humbled heart that recognizes as Mary did, I am nothing and you are everything And then it moved to a song of redemption, telling the story of redemption and ended staying on God's promises. And so you'll see some similarities to what Zacharias is being led to say today as well because they're both rejoicing in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ in advance. His praise relates to those last two ideas of Mary, the plan of redemption and the promise of God. And we will see that this morning. But the difference today is that plan of God of redemption and the promises that come with it, uh, Zacharias helps us to see how that intersects in Jesus Christ, how those come together in the person and work of Christ today, and that is what will encourage our hearts the most. So follow along with me as I read the story. I'll add verse 67 and then 80 at the end, but the, the essence, the heart of this message is the song itself that Zacharias has in 68 to 79. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited us and accomplished redemption for His people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, His servant, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath which He swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, 
For you will go on before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give His people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance in Israel. Open the eyes of our hearts, O God, to see the wonderful things in your wonderful Son, in your wonderful Word this morning. Amen. Question. No nudging the person next to you once this is asked. What's the longest you can remember going without speaking? And that's why there should be no nudges or chuckles as the person next to you might be thinking the same thing about you. What's the longest you've gone without speaking? My wife shared with me this week that she wishes I would talk less. Just kidding. My wife shared with me this week that uh, there was a family that took up the challenge of reading through the Gospel of Luke this month. And on day one, of course, uh, they had three little kids and they were doing Bible time as a family. And when they got to the part of Zacharias being told he will not speak for the next nine months, the kids had the blessed idea to see who could go the longest that day without talking. To which the wife texted, my wife, please thank your husband. I don't know if that's the necessary application of that text, but it worked for that day. Even further, that the kids went on to uh, write to one another, trying to, you know, communicate, just writing it down in words, and that counted as their homeschool grammar assignment that day as well. So there you go. Uh, Whatever you now know about Luke 1, you can add that to the mix. But back to my question, what's the longest you've ever been without speaking? Two weeks ago, between preaching on a Sunday and then coaching my kids' basketball team on a Monday, I lost my voice and was quiet for about five minutes. Um, no, it was a few hours, and I thought about that. I thought, wow, that's, that's really small potatoes compared to nine months. And it made me think about this week, just in my quiet time. What would quiet time be like if it was really quiet time? Nine months of quiet time and not being able to speak. And, and we, we can infer from the passage uh, in John 1, or sorry, Luke 1, that uh, the relatives came and they wanted to know about the name and they had to make signs to him. So it wasn't just that Zacharias couldn't speak, but he couldn't hear. And so nine months of silence. How would that change you if God wanted to teach you a lesson in faith? How would you be different? What would your relationship be like with Him? Just starting with that alone. Your communion with God when lots of other ways of communication have been cut out. For one, in in cutting out all the constant communication we hear all around us all the time. Right? The the radio that we listen to, the, the music, constantly streams. Some of you get that Spotify wrapped thing at the end of the year, and it tells you how many hours you've logged listening to music. Shows you the different bands you like. I mean, cut all that out. The 20,000 hours of music. The couple hundred hours maybe of a podcast. On top of all the conversations 
How would your relationship with God change? What would your relationship to hearing from Him and His Word be like if all that time was spent going to His Word to hear from Him? Not only that, how would relationships with people around you change? Imagine if you really did apply, be slow to speak and quick to listen from James for the first time ever. I mean, truly being slow to speak, just, you know, pointing to the calendar and showing them, I've still got eight months to go. So this argument you want to get into right now at 11 p.m. at night, push pause, got a while. Your relationships with other people, the um, ways in which just we're so quick to speak in our anger and say something we later regret and try to cover it with. I didn't really mean it, but it came out of my heart. And if the tongue speaks from the overflow of the heart, then there's something in that I did mean. Nice try. You may have not meant to say it the way you did, but you still did. So how would that change some of your relationships? Likely on the side of improving them, I would think, at the very least, because of all the times we err with our tongue, as James 3 talks about. And the last question, if you were silent for nine months, what do you think the first thing you would want to say would be? Would it be like Zacharias? That immediately after being quiet for that amount of time, the first thing that would come out of your lips is, blessed be the Lord. Is that where you would be, do you think? That would be the first thing that you would just rise up within you to say, spirit-led, verse 67 says, spirit-filled, but also word-fed, because like Mary's song, Zacharias's is full of Scripture. I don't think it would be wrong to infer that he spent a lot of time thinking and going back to the Word of God and meditating upon it, that he was so full of this benedictus, this blessing on God. We may never know the answer to the question of what we would be like if we had nine months of silence, unless I said, hey, church, let's do the Zacharias challenge in the new year. Let's all go nine months, you know, go, go dark, go silent, no phones, no social media. Oh, you could talk to each other, uh, but you have to write it out, you know, so you could really weigh your words before you're going to say anything, no texting, whatever. But honestly, the only way we might know um, a portion of what that could do in our hearts would be to see what it did to Zacharias to see the results of his life. And we see um, three parts of it today. That's how we'll divide out 68 to 79. Uh, in the first part, we'll see that um, when we're going to have a spirit-filled, a spirit-led and word-fed blessing for God, first and foremost, 68 to 73 shows it's what we say about him. 74 to 75, what we say about ourselves. And then 76 to 79 to the end, what we want to say to other people. But if maybe we order the things of the way uh, Zacharias did, that it's always going to start with wanting to say something about God. And what Zacharias says about God is this in 68 to 73, God is my salvation. That's what he wants to say after nine months of silence. God is my salvation. Verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us and the house of David, his servant. That's a mouthful, but he's had some time to think about it. But what he's saying at the end of the day is God is my salvation. He is in this blessing as the word implies, giving tribute, acclamation, homage, honor, and exaltation 
similar to Mary back in 46 and 47. His soul was doing the same. It was exalting the Lord. It was in rejoicing in God, his Savior. It was spirit-filled in that way, but it was also word-filled because uh, this line, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, was a common phrase in the Old Testament, particular to David and Solomon. You could go back and read at the Davidic covenant and great moments of redemption in David and Solomon's life, wanting to build the temple, that when they were blessing God, this is the first phrase that came out of their lips. That God is one who deserves to be praised and blessed. But in David and Solomon's case, it had more to do with a kingdom to come, a house to be built for God. Here, Zacharias says something different hundreds of years later. He's just excited that the God that has been silent for 400 years, the God that to many people in the time of Israel has seemed distant in a way, has done what? What's the reason for his blessing? He has visited us. But he's not talking about his own son who's been born. There is this visitation, this idea that God has seen us and interested in us and noticing what's going on here because he has a word for us again. That's that's this word, he's visited us. He's not so much saying anything about the visitation of the angels. He's talking about a visitation that has to do with when you are seen and recognized and known, as we talked about two weeks ago with Mary, when she said that that God has had regard for me, and that blows her away, you know, that he noticed her this humble, or last week, he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave, 148. So that's this idea of visitation, and behind that is, well, when he notices us and he sees us and we've been in this darkness, what's he done for us? He's accomplished redemption for his people. That's what he's done. That's the high point of this passage, this blessing, is that God has accomplished redemption, which is the great story of the Scripture from beginning to end, from the fall to, to his return is what? It's a story of redemption. That which has been lost has now been restored and returned by the grace of God in Christ. He's raised or he's visited, he's noticed, he's seen, and redemption has been accomplished. It's been sent to us. Psalm 111.9, God has sent redemption to his people. It's just not some message from afar. What good would a plan of redemption be? without a person to accomplish it. I was reading about a great story of of rescue of hostages back in the 70s in in Uganda, Operation Thunderbolt, I think it was called. And hostages were taken, and there was a plan that had to be put together, but what would it have accomplished if if it was just a plan? It was just a blueprint that nobody actually was sent to do anything about it. So he's praising God that there's this plan of redemption for his people, but see, the plan only gets you so far. You have to get to the person of the plan, which is the next part of saying, God is my salvation. Who is it that's going to do it? Verse 69 gives the answer. How's God going to accomplish redemption for his people? By raising up a horn of salvation for us. And this is the person located in the lineage of David, in the house of David, his servant. This is why we know it wasn't about John the Baptist. He's not bragging on his son in this opening part because his son, John the Baptist, wasn't in the royal line of lineage 
Why do we know that? Because back in Luke 1.5, we learn that he's a priest of the division of Abijah. And if you go back to your Old Testament and study that lineage, it goes back to Levi, not Judah. So this horn of salvation in the house of David, his servant, has to be somebody that could fulfill the royal lineage. And he would know, it wasn't my son, it's the one that my son is going to point to. Now, of course, because he can hear and speak, I'm sure he knows all about the visit that Elizabeth and Mary had and all that was told to Mary. And so he is looking at the Messiah who is coming in verse 69. And this is a a promise that God has made all the way back to 2 Samuel 7 in the Davidic covenant when David wants to build a house for God, but God says, no, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to give you a king. And he is going to sit on the throne forever. And David, being a righteous man who lived by faith, knew that this wasn't, a, um, this wasn't a promise of a Davidic kingdom that was purely physical, that was going to end someday. Because in David's last song, his final words that he speaks in 2 Samuel 23, when he refers to this covenant promise that God made to him back in 2 Samuel 7, He doesn't call it a a personal covenant, the Davidic covenant. It's just about me and God. He calls it an everlasting covenant. 2 Samuel 23, 5, Truly is not my house so with God, for he has made an everlasting covenant with me, ordered in all things and secured for all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not indeed make it grow? What does David see with eyes of faith? He sees an everlasting promise from God and a person that will come from his throne. And it is a promise that is ordered in all things and secured for his salvation forever. Is God's plan of redemption in your life any different? The promise he has made to be with you forever, to grant you salvation, believer? Is it not an ordered in all things promise and secured? And yet, what maybe challenges us is we always don't know the order, do we? I mean, David's on the end of his life looking back, able to say this, but where you sit today, it might be harder to hold faith in the promises of God. Why? Because you have questions of why. If you love me and you've saved me and given your son for me, why am I in the situation I'm in today? You have to, by faith, hold on to the promises that David held on to in 2 Samuel 23. Hey, this promise he has made of salvation, I at least know from God's side of things, it's ordered. The plan is designed for your life. He signed off on it. And you don't have to fear that somehow it's out of control. It's not just signed off. It's secured that it's going to come to pass what God has for you in redeeming you personally. Because this plan, going back to Luke 1, isn't just out there in the distant future, in eternity. No, this plan came into your life when you were saved in the person of Jesus Christ. He has a personal plan of redemption for you. And he did it with who? From his house. And the description we get of him is a unique description of the Messiah in verse 69. He's the horn of salvation. That's an awesome phrase. It's a unique phrase to Jesus Christ. It's the only time it's used about him in the New Testament. Now, it has Old Testament roots. The horn of salvation is 
Something even David praised God for in Psalm 18 when he said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And you're like, well, that's still not doing it for me, Adam. Like, so he carries around this horn and blows it when he needs faith. Oh, I feel strong, Lord. No, where'd the horn come from? the wild ox of the Old Testament, this beast of burden that if you met it in person, you'd run the other way because it was a wild ox. Don't believe me, believe Job. When God is speaking to Job of the nature of his creation and all the ways in which Job has doubted whether he sees Job, and God's answer is, I see everything. I don't just see your life, Job. I see the goats, I see the donkeys, and then in Job 39.9, he says, will the wild ox consent to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind the wild ox in a furrow with ropes, or will he harrow the valleys after you? You want to mess with that thing? I mean, if you're, I mean, like we've got the petting zoos, and you can go up to the cows, maybe, I don't know. I only tried cow tipping once, and I chickened out. Because I got within, like, from here to this guy, and uh, that thing got, I mean, it was, I knew they were big, but this bull was massive. And I knew my 180 pounds in high school wasn't going to stand against his 1,800. So I turned around and ran. And um, it was stupid to go cow tipping, but it was wise to run. This is what the image that Zacharias of all his nine months of reading about this Messiah, all of the phrases he knew to talk about him, of all of them, he picks the horn of his salvation. It's because, as the young people like to say, he knew a deep cut from the Old Testament. Back in Numbers 23, if you're quoting Numbers, you know your Old Testament. Because most of us don't even get through the first couple chapters in Numbers. And he's in Numbers 23, And he's alluding to a pagan prophet, Balaam, that God gives a word to warn an evil king, a king that thinks he's going to wipe out Israel. And Balaam goes back and says, no, Numbers 23, 22, God brings his people out of Egypt. God is for them like the horns of the wild ox. Didn't think you were going to hear so much about a wild ox today, did you? You wanted that baby in a manger with with sheeps and goats and calves around it. And in comes this ox with horns that would take anybody down. And this is the picture that Zacharias has of the horn of salvation when he thinks of this Messiah. Do you? Do you see your powerful Savior in the manger in babe form? What's so powerful about him? Well, it wasn't that he was going to go around trampling anyone. It was he was going to just trample one person. Who was it? Back in Genesis 3.15, his hoof was going to smash whose head? The serpent's. And what blood was going to be on the horns? His. And whose blood did it take the place of? Yours. When he canceled your debt that nailed to the cross. So what was the power of Christ that has nothing to do with anything physical, but everything to do with spiritual? It was the power of a perfect life. 
is active obedience to the Father, fulfilling purchase, perfect righteousness in the law. That's powerful, something we could not do for ourselves. It's perfect righteousness. And then it was his, active, or his passive obedience in being able to take the wrath of God at the cross that I deserved and you deserved. The power of the Savior in perfect obedience and receiving the wrath of God, thus being the only strong deliverer, the only horn of salvation that could take all of our sinfulness away and grant us all of His righteousness. So to say God is my salvation includes that. But it doesn't stop there. He has one more thing to say about God as His salvation. It's not just the plan of God in 68 and 79, or 69, and it's not just the person in 70 and uh, 70 or 69 and 70. It's the promises he pulls out of the Old Testament. His heart is full of these promises. 70, spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. So he had been in the word for nine months. He had looked back and he had seen maybe in that moment that he was promised a son that would be the forerunner. Maybe he needed to brush up again and that's why he needed the nine months of silence. I need to go back and check God has been promising this Messiah and this forerunner from of old. Verse 71, what's he going to bring? He's going to bring rescue, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. That's what he's going to do. A promise of deliverance from enemies. Can you claim that promise today as well in Christ? Do you feel secure from your enemy, Satan, and his millions of demons shouldn't keep you up at night. Why? Because you have been promised in redemption, salvation from that enemy of your soul. The enemy that wants to steal and kill and destroy. The one who, who um, disguises himself as an angel of light. Who, who, who lurks around like a roaring lion. But if you are in Christ today, you've been given salvation from your enemy and from the hand of all who hate you. Do you claim that promise in Christ? By believing in His Word? Then it says, He has shown mercy toward our fathers and remembered His holy covenant, the oath which He swore to Abraham our father. He is going way back to Genesis 15 and saying the reason we have such great confidence in the promises of God is because thousands of years later He's keeping the promise He made to Abraham in you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. It's claiming that promise as well. So this morning, if you're going to bless the Lord and all that's within you, bless His holy name. Remember His plan of redemption and, and know the promises He has for you that all come together. That plan and those promises intersect in the person of Jesus Christ. So if you know him as your salvation and you've trusted him personally, then you can move to the next part of his blessing in 74 and 75. If he is your savior, then you are his servant. You go from saying, God is my salvation, and in the next breath, I am God's servant. Why would that be the case? I turn that question around and say, why wouldn't it be the case? If 74 is true of your life, that by His grace He's rescued you from the hand of your enemies, sin, Satan, and death, 
How could you do anything but want to serve him? R.C. Sproul writes, that I can draw a breath is an act of divine mercy. God owes me nothing. I owe him everything. So as God's servant, first and foremost, in 74, we serve him gratefully (laughs) to grant to us by grace that we were rescued from the hand of our enemies. We serve him gratefully. Zacharias has taken these nine months, and it wasn't enough for him to just say, oh, God, you're so great. You're my salvation and redemption. He says, but I am your servant. So grateful service is part of our identity as a servant. And then not just grateful service, but what does it say there, 74? Next way we serve him is we serve him without fear. What's that mean? That's kind of hard to... um, hold together when all throughout the Old Testament we're told to fear God. That the beginning of wisdom is fearing God. So what do you think Zacharias is thinking about when he's saying serve him without fear? Well, Zacharias would have known during these days of Roman rule and before Roman rule, dominated by the Greeks and before the Greeks, the Medo-Persians and before the Medo-Persians, Babylonians, right? I mean, he could go back and remember 500 years of Israel being taken away in exile and just seeing successive kingdoms come and go, and all the while Israel's kingdom has never been restored. I mean, they were able to rebuild the temple, but it's still under whose governance? Rome's. So they're not free people. So maybe when he's saying we could serve him without fear in his mind, he has those rulers that you do serve in fear. Why? Because they don't love you. Caesar didn't love these people. Pilate didn't love these people. But this one who comes to save and rescue, you serve him without fear. Why? Because he gave his life for you. I mean, as powerful and mighty and majestic and holy as Jesus Christ is, He gave His life for you so you can serve Him without fear. First John says, perfect love drives out fear. That's how you can serve Him without fear. That if I know He loved me and died for me, am I still to respect Him and hold Him in awe and, and revere Him? Absolutely. He's God. But He's the Word that became flesh and came and humbled himself, didn't consider equality with God something to be held on to, but came and gave his life and submitted to the Father's will and went all the way to the cross to die in your place and in mine. So sure, we serve him, but we don't serve in a way that we we might serve somebody else, that we deep down have this uh, gnawing terror that he might change his mind about me if I mess up. Christ isn't going to change his mind about you, believer. He's not. On your worst day, he knew about your worst day. And he still died in your place. On your best day. Your best day compared to his? Not even close. So you serve him without fear because you've trusted in him for your salvation. You know he's redeemed you. Now what, would, what else could you do but serve him gratefully and fearlessly? And then last but not least, there is an intent of our lives to look different. That's why he says in 75, I am his servant. I serve him gratefully, fearlessly, but also 
putting all those pieces together, holiness, righteousness, and all the days of our lives, I call that um, uh, serving him sincerely, right? Sincere in my service to Christ, inside and out, the same person, holy on the inside, walking in righteousness on the outside, all the days of my life as his servant, because it's a privilege. I mean, you're going to, if you're reading through Luke, you'll, you'll see that all of life serving Christ is privilege. If you've been reading through Luke, today's reading in chapter 17, the servant that comes in from tending the sheep and plowing, he comes into the house to the master and he doesn't say to the master, prepare me something to eat. And the master doesn't thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? Luke 17, 10, so you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, you say, we're unworthy slaves. We've done only that which we ought to have done. And why ought you have done it? Why? Because what he did for you. What he did for you. And what we saw last week, what he's going to do for us in eternity. When Jesus gives the parable that we come into the feast and the master comes and serves us. That's why we ought. And then the next story in Luke 17 is about Jesus healing uh, 10 leprous men. And they get what they want and they go. And only one of them, when he saw that he'd been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And Jesus asks, what? where are the rest of them? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this one? I mean, isn't that us sometimes when we, when we stop thinking about ourselves as his servant, stop being grateful and serving him sincerely? We, we just go about our day as if it's not a big deal that he redeemed us. And uh, we see in Zacharias this idea that we will serve him in holiness and righteousness all of our days because he alone is worthy. So a question maybe this time of year. Look, I get it. Everybody's serving people this time of year. I mean, it's busy, you, your job might ramp up, uh, hosting people at your home, helping out at the church. But if you're not doing it out of a love for the Lord, out of gratitude in your heart, sincerely, what good is that service? You know? Um, the Lord, He's not receiving the glory there. You know, and we can do that pretty easy. You can throw some... some Great, or I was going to say Halloween party, Christmas party, and have everybody over, you know, and uh, really wanted to do it for the right reasons, wanted to encourage brothers and sisters in Christ, invite some lost people, and then if they don't, if everybody, like somebody doesn't come around, at least one person at the end and thank you, how's your heart? Because that tells you who you did it for. If you expected to get man's praise for it, you know. But if you could say, hey, Lord, if nobody thanks me, but I did it unto you. However you go out of your way this holiday season to serve other people, I, I did it unto you because I'm to serve you in holiness and righteousness all of my days. Why? Because you rescued me from the hand of my enemy. And so you can be fearless in your service. Just go all out. That's the second thing we see in Zacharias' blessing is this attitude of Humility, just like Mary's, the humble state of his bond slave, that he would notice me and put me into service for him, that he would put me on the team, that I'd get a jersey just to get in the game. 
You feel that way about the Lord this holiday? Maybe you need more of Zacharias' quiet time. And really go back and see what all God's done for you in redemption. And then finally, he moves from talking about God as his salvation and I am his servant to what his son is going to tell other people about him. And it's just the inverse of the first one. God is my salvation. God is your salvation, world. That's the message we have at Christmas. I mean, we get really excited in here to sing joy is the world. I mean, that joy to the world, that's a an amazing song, you know, joyful, joyful, we adore thee. I mean, our hearts are erupting in praise out of love for him, but where does it go when we walk out of here? Because we have a message to tell the world, and that's right here in 76 to 79. After what God has done for Zacharias and his people, and he's his servant, he turns around, and this is what he wants his son to be known for. This is what the message his son will have for the world, is that God is your salvation, Eight days after that little boy was born to he and Elizabeth, he's looking at his son, the forerunner of the Messiah, the one who's going to prepare the way of the Lord, the one who's going to turn hearts of fathers back to children and people back to their God to get them ready for the Savior, the Messiah, then the King. And the first message that's on his mind that his son will have to give the world is this knowledge of salvation, 77. When we go out of here today, And you say, well, what's my message for people? Hey, don't overthink the thing. It's right there in verse 77. If you want to stand in the line of John the Baptist, no greater man born of a woman, Jesus says about him. You say, yeah, I can't be a John the Baptist. You can't? Can you give people the knowledge of salvation, the forgiveness of sins? Note, I didn't say, can you save people? Nope. But you can tell him. You can give them what, what he is saying here about his son, that the, the forerunner to the Messiah, my child, he's going to go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Well, what do you think you're doing when you're evangelizing? You're going before the Lord. Not his first coming, but his what? His second coming. And his second coming, he's going to look a lot different than his first coming. It's in Revelation 19. It reminds me of the horn of salvation, that, you know, that intimidating ox. This is his return. Revelation 19, 11. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. He's coming back the second time for judgment. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Do you know some people that need a knowledge of salvation based on that? I mean, you can connect real quick with them by saying, hey, I see you're celebrating Christmas too. Baby in a manger, good stuff. You know that baby grew up. And you know he's coming back. And he's coming back in judgment. But guess what? He's coming back in judgment because he provided a way of salvation. And then you tell him the gospel story. And the, the pinnacle of the gospel story is verse 77. He came to save sinners. 
What a great message. You can be forgiven. Well, why is it so great to be forgiven, they ask? Well, tell them about verses 78 and 79. What, what, am I, what does it mean for me to have forgiveness of sins? It means then that you, know, you can experience what 78 talks about, the tender mercy of God, the grace of God. That's what forgiveness of sin gives you. The grace of God in your life. So you're not in fear of your next move because you're in favor with him because of his son. His, his tender mercy that we don't deserve, any of us. It's like a sunrise after a dark night, and for hundreds of years in Israel, it was the darkest night. They sat in darkness, and they were waiting, and there was nothing, there was no good news, and then here's the good news. The Messiah comes with forgiveness so that Jew and Gentile could know the tender mercy, the grace of God. What else do you want to tell people about but the grace of God and then the peace of God? That when he comes and that light breaks through the darkness and the shadow of death, where do we go? We go to the Prince of Peace. He guides our feet into the way of peace. This is what had Zacharias so filled with praise and blessing. He couldn't believe it, that he was there In his own time, even though he wasn't going to get to see the fullness of it, we get to look back and see the fullness of it. But man, we have to have that burden that if we know his, if we're so excited and moved by this first coming, this act of redemption, that he would give his life for us, that we would just not be able to finish that thought and say, but he's coming back and it's in judgment. And I want people to know they can be forgiven. If you're not in Christ this morning, do you know you can be forgiven? Have you experienced the grace of God in His Son? All of His work, all of His righteousness, all of His goodness, all of His mercy, all of His love, everything given for you. All of your sin, all of your shame, all of your guilt, all of your rebellion, All of the stuff on the outside, but even worse, all the stuff in our hearts on the inside. What an exchange. That that all of his goodness and kindness in Christ moves to us and all of the worst of us he takes on him. That's the knowledge of salvation. Forgiveness of sins so that you can know the grace of God to you. And you can have peace with him because you know that once that exchange is made, it's done for good right? It's done for good. There's no giving it back. He doesn't say, ah, you know, you've messed up so many times since then. I want to take it back. Give me the gift back. No, he died once for all. The just for the unjust, and it's finished. So what blessing can we give God this holiday? Well, first we give him the praise he deserves. God is our salvation, his plan of redemption, his promises in it, and his person in the Son, Jesus Christ. And you're His servant, so serve Him gratefully and fearlessly and sincerely. And then, what message do you have for others? Tell them about that same salvation. Tell them about forgiveness of sin that grants the grace of God and peace in Jesus Christ. You know, again, I, I, it's my sanctified imagination that thinks, hey, what was the purpose of the nine months of silence? 
I mean, it definitely humbled Zacharias like it would any of us. But what maybe was, you know, his chastising, his discipline leads to our what? Our edification this morning. Because of the time that Zacharias had to spend silent before God, we have more reason to praise him this morning, don't we? It's been for our good 2,000 years later what he went through. Because God is always not, he's always doing so many things, even in one thing. Zacharias could have thought, well, woe is me. But then now I'm sure he could look back and say, oh, over all the ages, people have come to this section and been able to see how wonderful God and salvation is. How wonderful his plan is. So don't sell short, maybe my last encouragement to you today. Don't sell short whatever season you're in. Maybe it's a silent one. Maybe it's one that you feel, God, you've, um, you've taken something away. Um, I seem to can't find you. But I'm still looking. I'm still searching. And um, he's just teaching you about himself right now in the silence. He's wanting you to draw closer to him. He wants to, you to know him as your salvation and the depths and the riches of his redemption for you and how you can serve him exactly in the place you are, believer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for its power to us to just be able to say with one accord this morning in here that you are our salvation, lifts our hearts, that plan of redemption beyond the wisdom any of us could have had, the sending of your son beyond any type of love we could have ever experienced. The promises better than anything we could have ever wanted for ourselves. So we thank you that salvation is all of you today. Pray that it would encourage us, one, in our hearts to serve out of gratitude and sincerely and fearlessly today, that we would even be more charged to open our mouths and, and tell somebody this week the good news. Pray that we would see the opportunities around us for it. Tell them of forgiveness. Tell them of grace. Tell them of peace. All the wonderful blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus today. Amen.